brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Hallelujah and hello, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and as we continue to better understand the playbook of the planet's puppet masters, we see that many of their scams and schemes have been run on us before, And with a longer view of history, it becomes a little bit easier to stay calm in all the chaos. Because history is not a timeline, but actually a series of time cycles. And history will repeat itself, even when we're talking about the nefarious agendas of the capstone cabal. Whether it's the hyped-up, anxiety-causing mainstream narrative, a false flag attack to justify the imperial expansion, the ebbs and flows of the highly controlled financial faucets, or a corporate medical cartel testing their treatments on human guinea pigs. The understanding that there's nothing new under the sun is one of the best prescriptions for that the-sky-is-falling feeling. Well, serenity now, good people, because given the intensity of our times, this lesson is as important as ever, and what better teacher to drive it all home than the great Ross Ben. He's the man behind Great Mystery Philadelphia, Free Your Mound and Your Mind Will Follow, Rocks of Ages, and 5G Wellness 101, all books of his that we've talked about in previous shows and are available at rossben.com. He's also a mystic, healer, counselor, astrologer, peacekeeper, and bright mind for our troubled times with a Master of Arts degree in African-American Studies from Temple University. Today we're talking about his latest work, Great Mystery Philadelphia Reveals America's First Plandemic, as well as what his astrological forecast says about the second half of 2020. A fellow friend of Sweet Lady Cannabis from the esoteric hotbed that is Philadelphia, the conduit to the ancestors, and a modern magi if there ever was one. Ross, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Peace, peace. How you doing, good brother? I'm hanging in there despite everything. And yes. I really appreciate everything you do, man. And this latest presentation is no different. I've said so many times that with an event like 9-11... A lot of people can't accept the notion of a false flag. It seems too big and too bold. But if you learn about the long history of false flags, how they've started many, many major conflicts, and how Operation Northwoods was another that was suggested to Kennedy by his entire military cabinet, you start to see how an empire attacking itself is not only possible, but it's 
actually kind of routine. It's how things usually pop off. And in that same regard, you've taken this event that people are now dubbing the pandemic and applied the same kind of thinking. Is this new or have they used this page of the playbook before? And the parallels are crazy. And to kick this off, you were one of the first guests that I had here to talk about the whole coronavirus chaos. It just happened to start happening as we were planning a conversation about something else entirely. But now that you've had another several months to reflect on it, as well as the George Floyd protests that have been going on in its wake, how have you been, man? We're getting hit with a lot in uh, 2020, it seems, no? We really are. I'm just thankful that I had some inkling that 2020 was going to be a wild ride based on, you know, the astrological outlook, you know, this being a year of great conjunctions, you know? Mm -hmm. And I knew the first conjunction was going to be bananas with Pluto hitting Saturn and Capricorn in early January. Mm -hmm. And that's what we would say kicked off this pandemic. So I'm glad I had some sense that it was going to be intense. You know, it's helping me keep the faith and walking in my neighborhood. It was real deep, man, because, you know, I was out on a walk and I kept hearing, you know, like, I guess best I could say is like some ancestors whispering like, yo check out the yellow fever, check out the yellow fever epidemic, check it out, check it out, right? Mm. And I walked by the Germantown White House where George Washington was during the yellow fever epidemic and read the plaque. And it just sent me down this rabbit hole because you're right, when I came on, like when this thing was first jumping off, I'll be honest, even though I had some sense that something intense was going to unfold, at that time, I really didn't know how to read it. Like I didn't have a lens that would let me articulate, yo, this is what we're seeing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But hey, give thanks, man. Obedience is its own reward because how the ancestors was like, look into the yellow fever epidemic. And yeah, man, that thing was America's first pandemic. <laughs> and we see so many synchronous analogies to what's happening today, down to the writing. And Looking at this yellow fever epidemic, you really see the roots of today's modern biomedical nightmare we're living. To me, it's the lens we need right now to have a better understanding. And I may make it a book, but spirit had me like, yo, just get this thing out here. You know, people need to know this now and let it inform their perception and their decision-making. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, people are kind of freaking out. So the faster they can get some kind of context to put it in, the better they'll be. And you say in that presentation, you referred to Philly as a museum without walls. And it is crazy that you are so rooted in this environment because you're so good at what you do. And to be this kind of modern bard, it couldn't really be any other way. And this area, Grumblethorpe, you say, was where the first Winstar family home was. And we're going to talk about Casper Winstar, but he was one of the first vaccine advocates. And right across the street is Christopher Sauer's place where they printed the first Bibles in America. And this is kind of what you're talking about, the roots of so many things that affect the world today. Right here, we have the establishing of this union between the press and Big Pharma because they both come out of this nexus that happens to be the same city block where you happen to be. And that's just pretty wild, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, this neighborhood, man, this neighborhood, Germantown, is, man, the story, the mystery history story that is encoded in Germantown is almost as deep as what's encoded in Center City or the Ben Franklin Parkway. It's just more interwoven into a regular looking neighborhood. So it's much easier to take for granted and overlook what they have encoded here. But I could say, generally speaking, if you want to say ultimately what is Germantown, it's where they would say America's royalty is rooted. The Wistar family being one, because another thing about the Wistar family, they're the one American family that I'm aware of that is married into lineages of popes. And you also have Americans royalty here with Grace Kelly and the Kelly family who, you know, there's a whole deep science with them that I'm not going to get into tonight because I would kind of take us off topic, but how Grace Kelly married, I think he was the Prince of Monaco, making her like, you know, what they would call quote unquote America's royalty, you know, her home, her residence is about two blocks from my house and maybe six blocks from the Germantown White House and the Worcester House. So when you talk about royalty, you usually have two distinct bloodlines that make up what they will call the noble royal houses. And that's the lineage of popes and the lineage of monarchs. And here you have in one neighborhood, like a mile apart from one another, the families that, you know, check off both of those. And the only two families of the United States that I'm aware of, you know. <laughs> wow. Just a hotbed of hidden history. So much we don't know. And so if we're going to dive into this story and we're going to tell people about a way to think of the coronavirus situation by talking about the yellow fever epidemic that hit Philadelphia in 1793. Where do we start this story? Well, I guess we would have to start with Caspar Wister. 
right? You kind of mentioned him. The plant wisteria is named after him, okay? And his family founded the Wistar Institute, which is closely associated with the University of Pennsylvania and kind of drives biomedical research and they got their hand in policy as well. You know, as far as like what we would consider the medical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And he was a big man at the Pennsylvania hospital, which kind of grew into UPenn. And he was working with a guy named Benjamin Rush, who is a complex character. In a lot of ways, Benjamin Rush would kind of be parallel to Anthony Fauci, who we see today. Mm -hmm. Again, he was well-rooted in his profession. You know, he went to school in Edinburgh and Scotland, and he became a kind of big man at Pennsylvania Hospital as well. But he had a very bizarre approach to wellness that he called heroic medicine, also called depletion therapy, right? And basically it was like he felt yellow fever caused such a dramatic response in the body that the best way to treat it was to deplete the body's vitality so it wouldn't have so much energy to respond and that way it wouldn't present such dramatic symptoms and that you would be able to just get over it. So he would bleed and purge. He would bloodlet. He said he was intrepid with the lancet. He showed no fear using the lancet. And he would drain like quarts out of you, right? We got seven quarts. He might drain four or five quarts. And then he would purge your bowels with what he called Dr. Rush's thunderclappers, which were basically mercury and jalapeno pepper emetics given either through enema form or actually swallowed. And yeah, man, his approach was buck wild. You know, yes, this is the medical side, but the whole pandemic rollout, you could kind of say, fell on the shoulders of a man named Stephen Gerard or Stephen Gerard, who, you know, if we use this 2020 and 2020 lens today would be like Bill Gates. Right. He was a grimy dude, man. He was an enslaver. Before he came to the States, before he came to Philadelphia, he made his money pirating between New Orleans and Haiti, taking rum, sugar, slaves, cotton, back and forth. He had his own plantation in what became Louisiana. Just a real grimy pirate dude. He came here in 1776 
And I really think that's the real reason Philly is associated with 76, like the 76ers. Like, who are the 76ers, you know? We could get into that if we talk about astrology of things, particularly the astrology of the nation. But he arrived here in 1776. A critical look at history would say it wasn't happenstance. You know, that more than likely he was coming as an agent provocateur for the French financiers who were sponsoring the quote-unquote American Revolution. And he hooked up with a shipbuilder here in Philadelphia, a man named Lum, who died mysteriously shortly after Gerard got here. Gerard married his daughter real quick, like three months with being here. This is all in 1776. I'm just going to kind of fast forward that reality because she ended up being under the care of Benjamin Rush and developed what they called incurable lunacy. But I'm sure if she was being given thunderclappers and bloodlet, she would lose her sensibilities. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And so he had her committed that way and took over the Lum estate. And so this man amassed a lot of wealth and used it to basically gain a stranglehold over the U.S. banking system. And he is the one man in U.S. history who can say, like, at one time, this one man owned the whole country. And to be honest, if you look at this pandemic, he consolidated the financial system through using the pandemic. And the way it kind of rolled out, the critical year to study is 1793, okay, where it's post-War of Independence, the United States has established nationhood with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. And that's kind of what I was speaking about, where we say the birth of the nation is July 4th, 1776. I don't think so. That was when the nation was conceived. The nation was actually born September 3rd, 1783, with the Treaty of Paris. And if you look at the Treaty of Paris astrological chart, you really do see that that is a better fitting chart of the United States than even the Franklin chart of July 4th, 1776. I don't mean to get aside from that, but I'm just mentioning that, that that's when the U.S. gained national status among nations, you know, a recognized nation. Sovereign status, September 3rd, 1783, making the U.S. a Virgo. I guess we could say that's when Columbia was incarnated, activating that Virgo principle. But that occurs, but the U.S. is in major debt, both the states as well as the new federal government to these French financiers who were centered out of 
what they call the Rue Jacob quarter of Paris, okay? And these is where what they would call the Jacobins or the Jacobites, this was their stronghold in France. And these were really the financiers who sponsored the American Revolution. Gerard was down with them and his family, just like Gerard appeared to be working with them in the States and in the Caribbean, Gerard's family in France worked extensively with them. And it's these same Jacobins who sponsored the French Revolution and the reign of terror in France. These are the same ones who Benjamin Franklin worked with along with Pierre L'Enfant to form the Society of the Cincinnati. So these are some integral boys in the founding of the U.S. and heavy in debt to them. So 1793, when the French Revolution jumped off, the French Republic, which was basically the resurrection of the Roman Empire in France, they were like, yo, we should have a empirical, you know, empire form of government, no more monarchs. So they waged war against all the other powerful kingdoms of Europe, including the kingdom of Great Britain. And this jumped off in 1793. U.S., we were heavy in debt after the war independence, like I just mentioned, plus the wounds of the war hadn't really been healed. So George Washington, ironically, took kind of like what you would say a Donald Trump, America first policy, <laughs> right? Like, nah, we're not gonna, because when France declared war on Great Britain, they were like, yo, we supported you in your war independence, you gotta support us in this war. Washington was like, nah. So in April of 1793, he declared what was called the Proclamation of Neutrality, you know? April 22nd, like, nah, we're not gonna engage in war against Great Britain with France. So that set the stage for what's called the Citizen Genet Affair, or Citizen Genet, probably. You know, I always mess up French, excuse me. So <laughs> Citizen Genet, right? He was the ambassador of the French Republic to the U.S. So this dude, he violated all protocol. Instead of coming to Philadelphia, checking in with heads of state, he went straight to South Carolina, started gathering up privateers, gathering up pirates, raiding British ships, seizing British commodities, basically trying to create an international incident that would caused the U.S. to have to get involved in the battle. So Washington summoned him up here to Philadelphia, right? Before he met with Washington, though, he met with Thomas Jefferson. And there is really strong evidence, particularly the letters of John Adams, 
and his chronicling of this time period that he felt Thomas Jefferson, Edmund Genet, and Stephen Girard created America's first pandemic. Mm -hmm. Because later that year, so the proclamation of neutrality was declared in April. Genet came that same month, started setting it off in South Carolina. In May, he reported to Philly. By August, Stephen Girard brought anywhere from two to three to possibly up to 10,000 refugees from Haiti who were attempting to escape the reign of terror that these same Jacobins that were jumping it off in France, they jumped it off in Haiti as well, which caused a lot of the landowners more affluent to want to flee. Stephen Gerard brought at least 3,000 of them up here to Philly, and with them they brought yellow fever. <laughs> right, and this is a really important part of the story. I guess Gerard had a little bit of history in Haiti because he had been involved in their previous revolution. I guess that was in 1791. Lupus in there and just Gerard's uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but Gerard's history in Haiti before he actually brought those refugees in. Yeah, it just shows how grimy this dude is, man. Yes. Because, right. So the French Revolution, it wasn't just a one dramatic event. It kind of unfolded over a couple of years. You know, 1791 being the year of that first event where you had basically the House of Lorraine sponsoring dissent against the House of Bourbon within the Kingdom of France, right? And so they sponsored that same dissent in Haiti, same year, 1791. And it resulted in like some uprisings, slave revolts, where, again, the landowners and the merchants, they wanted to escape the island, but they wanted to leave with their plunder. So they contacted Stephen Gerard, who basically, he was the marquis who managed all French ship movements in the Caribbean at this time. The marquis is like the title of a privateer. And so he was the big Frenchman that, hey, if you need a whole lot of ships real quick flying under the French flag, you got to holler at Stephen Gerard. So they were like, yo, we need to escape. We need to get off. He was like, all right, I got a ship there. Go ahead and put all your goodies, put your gold and your silver and your plunder, put all that on there. And I got a ship coming to pick you up. First ship sailed off, never came back and picked him up. And so Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was the leader of the uprising in Haiti at that time, yeah, he just massacred those landowners and Stephen Gerard got their stuff. And again, he used that to invest in the 
First Bank of the United States, just like he used some of the Lummis State to invest in the First Bank of the United States. Right. So we got this guy. This stuff goes down in Haiti. He marries a shipbuilder's daughter. That guy dies. Gerard hands his wife over to the sicko Benjamin Rush. She's committed. He gets that fortune. This guy's just swallowing up fortunes. And another link between him and Dr. Rush that I thought was really fascinating with parallels to today is you talk about how Gerard also invested in trade routes between America and China. He actually established direct contact between America and China. And one of the number one things he was bringing over here was opium. Tale as old as time, you know, international drug smuggling. But he says to Rush, hey, man, do whatever sick stuff you want to do, but make sure you're using opium. I got to sell this stuff. I'm getting it. We're going to use it. And when you're doing bloodletting and jalapeno mercury enemas, you're going to need something for that pain. So who's the supplier for that? Gerard. And it's like, this is the parallel to today's story because you got this guy who's really the financier who's also a provocateur with his own political agendas moving some of the chess pieces over there and he's tied up with you know Casper Windstar and Dr. Benjamin Rush who are that medical side maybe they're the Jekyll and Hyde of Fauci in today's story Mm. and yeah it's just like those are the pieces and obviously there's more to it but I really thought that opium transportation smuggling element was was really poignant because obviously that's something that still goes on in the medical world today yeah yeah i mean when we look at this yellow fever pandemic we see the roots of today's biomedical nightmare with mercury opioids and vaccinations yeah the three ingredients are all right there with these key characters. And even, so right, I've heard this saying that in Britain, Great Britain just announced in this research that they found this common steroid that works great for COVID patients on the respirator because it suppresses their immune response. So this whole idea, the whole what we could call range of pharmaceuticals that they call those immune suppressants. This is coming out of the philosophy of Benjamin Rush's depletion therapy. His approach was, hey, let's reduce the body's ability to respond, and that's going to allow them time to heal. But it's kind of backwards. Mm-hmm. Another connection where it was like, hmm, how deep down the rabbit hole could we go, right? Where my man was into all this bloodletting. What was he doing with the blood? Hmm. Wouldn't you generate a little adrenaline if you saw someone coming at you with a lancet? <laughs> Somebody's going to draw your blood, right? Is this the origin of that adrenochrome story? This is what I'm saying. It very well could be, man. I didn't go into that in the video. Right. It's a possible parallel. It is. And another one that I thought was really interesting. So Gerard has this history with Haiti. And then they go through this second revolution. And he brings all these refugees, thousands of people, 
into Philadelphia. And assuming he had this all mapped out, it's like, okay, well, now we can introduce this yellow fever pandemic and say, well, it's all these people, all these immigrant people that we brought in. You know, people are already primed to to bite on a story like that. And a parallel I see to today is, so if in the yellow fever story, it's it's all these other people who are making us sick. It's like in today's story, mm. we've already talked about how we're set up for this second wave of COVID this fall. It seems like it's already going to happen just in what you hear in the news. And whose fault is it going to be? Black Lives Matter. It's going to be the people who are protesting. It's going to be like, it's just an easy scapegoat for society. And I feel like there's a parallel there that is pretty on the nose. Yeah. And what's the super bananas parallel with the Black Lives Matter thing? So let's give a little detail of like what happened, right? So yellow fever is transmitted by mosquito, right? That's the vector of how you get it. So parasite that's passed on from mosquito bite to mosquito bite. But they didn't know that then. They thought it was spread by coughing or contact, human-to-human contact. So it is a pretty scary disease because it causes jaundice. That's why they call it yellow fever. And the parasite, depending on what part it's eaten in you, you might also have bleeding in your gut. And so you'll spit up what they call black vomit. It was also known as black vomit disease, right? So it really shook the city. Penn's Philadelphia had 50,000 people at this time. 20,000 left. So almost half of the city left, right? Those that stayed were the poor and the needy, those who couldn't. And they tended to self-quarantine because they were really scared. It's recorded that the only people who could be out in the streets with a sense of impunity, like they're not really scared of the yellow fever, were the Haitian refugees that Gerard brought up. And why that's important is because in the middle of this crazy health crisis, They had riots in Philadelphia, numbering up to 10,000. And these were riots that were demanding that the U.S. support Janae in going to war with Great Britain. And so, again, this is what it seemed like. It seemed like Stephen Gerard has several agendas for that I would confidently say but this was the biggest one that right he brought these Haitian refugees in who they were the vector of bringing yellow fever to Philadelphia but the vector of it spreading throughout the city was actually mosquitoes from that point right but he created this public health crisis and then in the middle of it it seemed like he sponsored protests that numbered up to 10,000. So if they said 20,000 people left, 30,000 were left in the city, 
10,000 were protesting. That meant one in four people were in the streets. And John Adams describes how they got there. And it was through, they were having these ox feasts and these festivals celebrating killing monarchs sponsored by who else, you know? More than likely Gerard, who was, again, attempting to help Janae and, you know, getting the U.S. to go to war. So it seemed like it was a pretty wild scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. And tell us a little bit more about that component in banking where, of course, just like here, when it was back then, there was a a market crash because of this. And if someone knew about that market crash, they would gobble up a lot of stuff when it's low, increase their share of the markets. But you mentioned the banking aspect, him getting control of the bank. Can you loop us in on that a little bit more? Absolutely. Yeah, because like I said, it seemed like there were four objectives Gerard had with this pandemic. We mentioned helping citizen Janae get the U.S. involved in war against Great Britain. I'll say real quick, he did use it as an attempt to rebrand himself, okay? Just like how Gates today wants to play himself so philanthropic and a lover of humanity, but really he's a misanthrope. He hates humanity. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Gerard used this as an opportunity to rebrand himself again to create a market in opium. And the fourth, He used it to attempt to gain control over the U.S. financial system. Because just like now, how we have a Fed, a central bank that is running the show to whose benefit and how can a nation be sovereign if it has one creditor that basically owns the nation? This has been the biggest argument against a central bank establishment since the days of Hamilton. You know what I mean? So there was a central bank at this time. It was called the First Bank of the United States. And it was actually the second central bank the nation had. The very first one was called the First Bank of America, and its charter expired in 1791, okay? Because that's when the First Bank of the United States was formed, and it was given a 20-year charter that was set to expire in 1811, right? So I told you, Stephen Gerard invested heavily in the First Bank of the United States even prior to the pandemic. He did so in 1790 when he gained control of the Lum Estate. He did it again in 1791 when he jammed up the Haitian landowners and took their plunder and left them to die on the island, right? So 1793, when this pandemic jumps off, of course, yeah, 
the whole stock market took L's and he invested heavily, very heavily after 1793. He didn't become a majority stakeholder until 1802 when him in cahoots with Napoleon Bonaparte betrayed Toussaint L'Overture, who was leading the Haitian Revolution at that point and had negotiated his freedom as well as being able to lead a newly established and independent Haiti where Gerard had him kidnapped and Gerard's ships transported him to Paris where he was imprisoned and passed. Gerard confiscated what would be in today's value about six to eight million dollars worth of wealth Toussaint L'Overture had. And he put that money in the First Bank of the United States, and that made him the majority stakeholder from that point, 1802. Hmm. Yeah, so wild. He had his hand in so many pies. And on the medical side, I also thought it was interesting. So other aspects that have parallels, creating fear and hysteria. Check. They did that. Also, give the people a treatment that you control the production and supply of. Check, you know, opium versus vaccines today. Also, we talked about how sick Dr. Rush's practices are. What about the idea that in both cases, we have aspects of malpractice deaths being used to heighten the disease numbers? There's a lot of messed up stuff they're doing to COVID patients. And if a person dies, like, if a person dies on a ventilator, they don't say, oh, well, the ventilator killed them. They obviously say coronavirus killed them. No matter what they do to the person, no matter what they pump them full with, right. if they die, it's coronavirus. Just like Dr. Rush, you know, he's going to be able to say, oh, that was yellow fever. I tried to do heroic medicine and uh, this person died. They just weren't heroic enough, I guess. And there's a, a real same shape there that I'm seeing. You're absolutely right. I mean, they said Rush saw over 100 patients a day between July and September of 1793. The final death toll was 4,044. 4, and many of Russia's colleagues felt like, yo, what this man is doing is worse than the disease itself, you know? Mm. One of them being Caspar Wistar. And that was really like prior to the yellow fever pandemic, Rush was the star of Pennsylvania Hospital and his depletion therapy, heroic medicine was champion. But what happened was, was Casper Wistar himself got yellow fever and he fell under Dr. Rush's care and he barely survived. And so he put his voice and influence behind it like, yo, this man is killing people with this thing. And so he was actually relieved of his duties towards the end of it. But this is after 4,044 people passed. And you're right. He would attribute all of those deaths to the yellow fever. 
Now, Yellow Fever came back in 1798. It came back in subsequent years, but the same numbers of people weren't dying as when Rush was free to use his depletion therapy. Mm. Yeah. And you also have a quote, because you're digging up all kinds of documentation when you're looking into this history prompted by the ancestors, which is just awesome. But one of his critics in all that was saying, you know, this is insane. Should we bleed and purge everyone? And yes, he said with a you know big exclamation point. And that sounds exactly like Bill Gates today. We can't get back to normal life until every healthy person, everybody, period, is vaccinated. It's like, again, real parallel has the same uh, beats to it. And you know the mystic part of it? All right, he was talking about the Kensington section. He was at a rally in Kensington, like on a stage with a crowd. And someone in the crowd yelled out, yo, you're saying we should bleed and purge all of Kensington? And Rush yelled back, yeah, bleed and purge all of Kensington. The wild thing now, Kensington is the epicenter of Philadelphia's opioid epidemic. If you Google Kensington, Philadelphia, yo, the biopharmaceutical nightmare you see these people living in over there is bananas. You know, it's bananas. This is classic. This is probably one of the worst heron markets in the nation, open air heron markets in the nation, right there in Kensington today. So it's kind of a mystic overtone legacy of this yeah how this thing you know morphed into you know right and another thing with gerard and the bank that he bought into is you've mentioned that it was the first seed money for the new york stock exchange i think this was in a different interview but you mentioned that maybe tracking that money could possibly lead to the same people planning the pandemic of today and I don't know how literal you were about that, but man, that's the seed money for the New York Stock Exchange? Yeah. Well, Gerard, he, I guess in rebranding himself, he renamed his bank two times. And I'm going to tell you what his bank ended up being named. And this is how you know. I mean, he's slapping the ignorant in their face. What did his name of his bank ultimately become? Citizens Bank as in Citizens Janae Affair. So he's telling y'all, like, yeah, motherfuckers, I got y'all, <laughs> I got your nation, I got your country. God. You know? Yeah. Citizen Bank, as in Citizen Janae, the Citizen Janae Affair. He named his bank after the incident that allowed him to be the biggest bank that, you know, at one time owned the country. Yeah, man. It's also a slap in the face because so often things are just a complete 180 from what they really are. And Citizens Bank, it's like, this bank is your guys's. It's the community bank. It's all of our bank. And it's like, no, it's this dude's bank. It's a very, it's a private institution extracting wealth from the people. And yeah, that, that's wild. Yeah. 
Yeah. But uh, needless to say, the money leads to the Civil War, World War One, and World War Two. Yeah, it's nuts that we hear Rockefeller and Rothschild all day, but we never heard Gerard. Yeah, check that. Check that. And Rue Jacob. Got to look up. Rue Jacob is very important. These Jacobines, these Jacobites of Europe, both in France, the French Republic, and post-Cromwellian England. Man, these dudes is, they deep. They're deep boys, you know? So you also say that the yellow fever pandemic backfired, and maybe that's what people are crossing their fingers for today. Can you elaborate on what happened in the aftermath? You mentioned Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he had to resign as Secretary of State. That there also were these letters from John Adams where he kind of threw it out there that I guess the quote I have written down is both parties have excited artificial terrors. Very key phrase. But what else happened in the aftermath that might give people of today hope that this plan might also backfire? Well, I'll just say, in regards of the Citizen Genet affair, Gerard was able to rebrand himself through it, right? Gerard was able to get a market established for his opium through it. And Gerard was able to consolidate absolute control over the U.S. financial system as a result of it. But the Citizen Genet affair, well, his goal of attempting to force the U.S. out of neutrality and in support of the French Republic against Great Britain that did not go down, okay? And that was what happened up here in Germantown. What happened was, and this is again so bizarre because, right, when you talk about the Germantown White House, which is where they say George Washington fled up here, which is about seven miles from Penn's Philadelphia, when he fled up here, it was to escape the pandemic, right? But that doesn't even add up if you look at George Washington's historic timeline of 1793, okay? At the height of the yellow fever pandemic, which was September of that year, Washington was in Washington, D.C., laying the cornerstone for the U.S. Capitol. He didn't return to Philadelphia until, I want to say, November 3rd. And he came to Philadelphia to announce the end of the epidemic. Because, again, they didn't know the vector of the disease at that time. We know now it was mosquitoes. So after the first cold rain came, it killed off all the mosquitoes and it just stopped. So Washington came back November 3rd to say, hey, it's over. We can 
open up business. Let's get it popping, you know? <laughs> right. Then sometime between November 3rd and November 16th, and I say that because for such a dramatic event of a 10,000 number protest in the capital of the nation at that time, Philadelphia, right? And even the way Adams describes it, where, like, yo, these people was going to take Washington out of his house. And Governor Mifflin had to send out the state guard to protect the federal government. And Adams himself had to take up arms. And his servants in his home had to defend him. And a couple of them lost their life. An event this dramatic, you would think there would be more account of it, right? Right. The only accounts that I can find of it is John Adams' accounts. Most historic record of a rebellion that threatened continuity of government in that era was the 1794 Whiskey Rebellion, which occurred in western Pennsylvania. And I don't know if that's a smokescreen or it's just a actual historic oversight. You know, I find it interesting that you don't find a lot of information out on that, you know? Absolutely. Wild. And you do say in the Yellow Fever presentation that the Great Mystery Philadelphia helps reveal that first pandemic. What is it about that original work that would be most helpful? with this pandemic decoding. Anything that we didn't talk about? Yes. The Jacobean role in Haiti and their influence and weight on George Washington. And that there's a very strong possibility that the Jacobeans of Haiti and Europe were Moors, you know? that there may have been Moors who were sponsoring the American Revolution out of Rue Jacob. Which is to say for people who don't know Africans. Yes, indigenous melanated people. Which, you know, one of the things that the great mystery does deal with also is the idea that Ma'at is always real. Omniversal law is always active and present. Karma. So we have to recognize that and take responsibility for our place in space-time. That more often than not, it's not the actions of others and their ancestors that creates your condition in place in space-time, but it's the actions of your own ancestors. And if you ask anyone, you say, do you hold your ancestors responsible for your reality right now or someone else's? More often than not, they'll want to say, well, my ancestors, you know, because, yeah, I mean, you want to give them the ashe do you know those whose shoulders you stand on that's what we say you know we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us 
But then, you know, that means you have to then get a lens of history that allows you to see what critical points in history did we, and when I say we, like our ancestors, those of our ancestral bloodline, make key mistakes, key errors on a national scale that might put us in the situation we're in now. Why? Because Ma'at is real, cause and effect. And so that's one aspect of the great mystery. The other aspect of the great mystery that I think is important is given the eye to be able to decode art, architecture, and archetype symbols in your environment, right? All the things I showed in that video, the Wistar, Grumblethorpe, Germantown White House, man, they're less than five blocks from my house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm sure if we're more aware, right? Now, Philly is a very unique place because Philly is a knot, what they would call a knot of space-time. The past, present, and future, there's like 12,000 years of history layered and accessible right here. Not just, you know, buried atop of, but here and accessible. And there's this researcher, his name escapes me, but he works with the Philadelphia Historical Society. And he kind of looks into the whole parent, because, you know, Philly is a, what they would call a paranormal hotspot. And one of the reasons why is his theory is, is that there's like the veil of space-time is very thin here. So energies and people from other times can bleed into the present, more or less. And that thing is real, man. <laughs> that thing is real. It's a real experience that if you open yourself up to, you'll have here. But beyond that, the way time is unfolding, my feeling is if people are aware and attentive wherever they find themselves, the keys to decoding serious mysteries about where they live is right in front of their face. If they would take the moment to look with an eye of decoding, and that's what, you, after you read The Great Mystery of Philadelphia, as well as Free Your Mound and Your Mind Will Follow, you know, you're going to have that eye. You know? Yes. Well said. So, yeah, man. Give thanks for the opportunity to talk and reflect on these things. I'm sure this was on the hearts and minds of a lot of people. Yes. Give thanks indeed. This has been a real heavy show. Insightful, but also sort of intense, especially that second hour. But any parting words for the people? What do you want to leave them with? I would encourage them to check out the Great Mystery Philadelphia Reviews, America's First Pandemic. I do have another recent uh, YouTube production also, Fortify Like a Magi, where I have an EMF pollution meter 
and my cell phone and I show the stopping power of the different crystals, you know? Yes, really impressive. Yeah, it's worth a check. So, you know, if possible, I know we we were kind of dancing around November, but yeah, I would say if possible, be somewhere where your environment, there's minimal chance of randomness. And urban environments might not afford that with this election and just where things is unfolding, as well as the astrological alignments. Unless we call down the star nations and transform it before then, Maybe that's our thing, too. Maybe if we're ready to take that planetary ascension, that step in planetary ascension, we can avoid it. Or, yeah, mad chaos jumping off, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we'll see. We will see. And thanks again so much. You are the man. I hope we get a chance to burn one down before the whole thing falls apart. But oh man, we got to man. This, we got we to can't go out before we uh, burn two big heads. You know. <laughs> yes. Hold off the apocalypse, Bill Gates. We got some smoking to do. But <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Until then, man, keep doing what you do. Thanks. All right, good brother. Much love. Take care. There you have it, people. History might not repeat itself exactly, but it definitely rhymes. Man, Ross Ben, killing it again. When he showed me this latest work, it just seemed like a creative way to talk about some forgotten history, some forgotten players in that history, and also calm some nerves out there in the current climate without doing another coronavirus show specifically. I don't want us to just be repeating ourselves or beating the same drum over and over again. It's always hard to manage feedback in a position like mine because I'm getting some feedback that says, dude, holy Russia, what are you talking about? There's so much going on right now. I need your guidance. And I hope everyone has better guidance than little old me, but I also get feedback that's like, hey, thank you for doing some shows that aren't about this because every show of our nature, I'm sure, is pretty much chock full of it, and it is fatiguing. So I get both bits of feedback and at about the same level too, so it's tough. You are going to notice a trend though in the next few upcoming episodes that I keep bringing up the fact that this probably won't end soon. And this virus, plague, pandemic theme is probably going to be with us for most of 2021 and be more intense than it is now. I say that largely because of what I'm hearing from most astrologers, which I understand is going to sound a little nuts to some people. But as Gordon has been saying too, it's also where plague and pandemic hit on Martin Armstrong's models, which he made several years before anyone ever heard of COVID-19. And on top of that, to me, it's just a good practice to hope for the best and plan for the worst. Maybe it's partly a mental exercise on my part to keep myself sane because a lot of us do keep drifting into this, well, it's almost over sort of mindset. And 
I don't want to sound like Fauci here by saying the worst is yet to come, but I also don't want to see anyone pausing their life too much right now because you could be in pause for a long time. Like many of you guys, I definitely have friends that don't feel comfortable going to bars or restaurants yet. I empathize with them, but what if this is as good as it's going to get for a while, right now? I know some people who are pretty much on my page, but their partners aren't, which again, you know, if you're in a partnership, you don't get to make executive decisions like that. So it's affecting all our lives, even just the perception and the policies based around this thing, regardless of the level of degree in which you're worried about actually getting sick. Just the kind of stuff I've been thinking about, along with a lot of you guys, I'm sure. Most likely the whole, well, I listened to a guy on a podcast who said viruses don't even make us sick approach isn't yielding too many converts. That wouldn't surprise me. And also, I should say, I personally still try to be open to a bunch of different ideas on this because I just don't know. The game can also change any minute, too, so you have to keep that in mind. But regardless, in terms of today's show, I hope you liked it. I'm sure you did if you're still listening now. A little bit more of a mystic approach to assessing this whole thing. It's exactly what Ross Ben is good at. I wanted to make sure that when I'm doing an episode that involves a story, that we get that full story told in the first hour. If we go into more depth in the second, that's cool, but you just can't leave people on a cliffhanger like that. So I try to get that full yellow fever story delivered to you in that first hour. And then the second one (laughs) definitely went to some unexpected places. We got Ross's breakdown of how he's reading the space weather slash sky clock going forward from here. We talked about the prospect of a coming cataclysm and the return of Star Nation. There's a deep mythology there that is probably the retelling of an old tale that might come back around again when it's that part of the cycle. I do believe this, but sometimes when channelers or shamans say that these times are getting close, quote-unquote, that can mean 500 years. So I am interested in this stuff, but I don't get too excited about these prophecies and predictions come into fruition like tomorrow. We talked a good deal about my Dr. Greer interview. We threw in a bit about Star Nation versus the Inner Earth Beings, the good guys above, the bad guys below. And I also want to throw out there a plug for this big July meditation that Ross Ben is going to be a part of that he really wants to see the THC community participate in because positive intention does have an effect on the world. And I think we know this by now and we should give it our attention. It's unify.org. They're doing World Unity Week right now, but they have more stuff planned for July. They're the biggest communal meditation group online, they say. Do check it out. I'm going to. And let's do things the Ross Ben way for a little while and see what happens. And finally, we did also talk a little bit about the defunding the police thing, which, you know, mixed opinions. Advocates will say that it doesn't mean abolish the police, but as a phrase and a slogan, it's probably not the best because it is up to interpretation. And not only does it cause confusion and thus more conflict between the opposing viewpoints, but you might end up cheering on something that you don't really want. 
I stand by the fact that demilitarize the police or reintegrate the police would be a better approach because those things are hard to argue against. I know I said this in the last wrap-up too, but since that show, if you're watching any news where they talk about this, it is always being said. So, defund the police actually means X, and then X can mean many, many things. Everybody puts whatever they want into that phrase. And in several places, it has meant abolish the police. So, just don't take anything for granted, I guess. And on the bright side, I have heard a lot of creative, innovative ideas proposed for how we restructure the police departments. Jocko Willick on the Joe Rogan Experience said that he thinks that 20% or one-fifth of a police officer's time should be training, not just to get into the department, but always. I kind of agree with that, and I personally think that if we just had them doing slightly different things, it would make a world of difference. Lean a little bit more into that serve part of protect and serve, and fold in a lot of volunteering or charitable works into the job description. And if you don't like those aspects of the job, then maybe you shouldn't be a cop. But honestly, everyone has their ideas, and we're not really making the decisions. And as volatile and polarized as things are right now, I am concerned that this time was chosen for such a serious conversation precisely because this is not a good time to have it. And we got to be careful that we don't get a problem-reaction-solution situation where we're worse off or we're contracting police work out to Blackwater or something crazy like that. But you don't want to hear me ramble on about this sort of stuff anyway. In higher side news, I did have to move last night's joint session. Something came up and I just couldn't take the time to have two hours in front of the computer taking calls. I didn't want to cut it short because I had to do that last time, so I figured it was best to just move it. So we're going to do it tonight, Friday. June 26th, 7 p.m. I want to keep doing these joint sessions because they are sort of the only audience participation we get. But I do end up getting a lot of the same callers, and then other people complain to me that their calls weren't answered or they couldn't get in. And I got a ton of emails about, well, when is the next one and how does it work? And I check the numbers for these things, and it doesn't seem like very many people even decide to watch them later. And this happens to a lot of content creators where they do one thing really well, like a podcast, and then they start adding a bunch of stuff to it. And people are like, look, we don't care about this other stuff you're adding. We just want you to do this one thing you do as well as you can do it. That's why I'm here. And so maybe we're in that situation. I wonder if joint sessions are worth doing sometimes. Not about the time spent on the mic itself, but just the communications about them that I have to have. And I really like THC episodes to be like self-contained podcasts that are relevant five years after they're recorded. And then I have a bunch of conversation and so many of them about updates about when we're going to do the joint session. And those things obviously don't apply later. Maybe there's a better way to do the audience participation thing that I'm trying to do. Or maybe the majority of people would rather I just focus on making good THC episodes and not bother them with other stuff. It's hard to know. Again, a lot of opinions, and I don't know what the majority would say, but oh well. Gotta trust that Ross Bennian intuition, right? 
But all that said, we do have a joint session tonight, Friday, 7 p.m. Get the link from the front page at thehiresidechats.com. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do. It's a huge help to me. We are getting a decent amount of cancellations out of necessity, if I'm going to be honest, which is totally understandable. Things are hard for people out there. But if you are a free show listener who's been on the fence and it's not going to break your bank, maybe you can throw me a bone. Because you're also going to be treating yourself to the deeper second hour of all these shows you've been missing. But that said, I love you guys. Get Ross Ben's books. Watch the presentations on his YouTube channel that we've been talking about. I hope the interview adds context to the video's narrative. Take care of you and yours. It's a really important time to be a positive influence in the world. Thanks for listening. Your move, pandemic planners, economic canners, and evil agenda space weather aligners. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight. Put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. We're looking for the answer to questions never asked. So we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. We try to get a glance. We're working on the numbers. Resistance must advance. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance.